Take your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. It's okay to use your table of contents, but go to Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you'll run right into 1 Thessalonians. So, Beginning this morning, uh, we are starting a brand new series in 1 Thessalonians, a uh, New Testament book, New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul. And uh, several months back, I uh, just uh, in finishing up First um, John, and we came in the summer and uh, began to preach a psalm, and it's kind of like what was the potato chip commercial? You can't eat just one. So I preached a psalm, and I thought, oh, I'll do another one next week. And, do another. and Austin says, well, after, what, two or three, you have a series. So it just kind of evolved into that. And I thought, I thought others, uh, you know, I had been wanting to do that, and I just kind of, you know, it was 150 of them, so, you know, it's not like you're going to run out of stuff. Uh, but, uh, but I had wanted to... Uh, uh, just felt like I wanted to get back into a b- book of Paul, and 1 Thessalonians is, um, is where we're going to be. The title of this series for uh, this fall, or however long it takes us, we kind of go by uh, uh, sometimes not necessarily verse by verse, but sometimes it's a verse or two, and sometimes, as today, it'll be a little longer sections. But the title of this series is called Living and Looking, Living for Christ, looking for his return. Uh, the First Thessalonians is a short book, basically. You can read it easily in under an hour or less, depending on your, your uh, reading. And First Thessalonians has five chapters in it. The first three, essentially, again, that's an exact, an exact thing, but uh, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and he's writing some, some, some things concerning uh, their, their walk with Christ and, and living as Christians, but kind of about halfway in chapter 4 through chapter 5 is some of the uh, key passages in the New Testament that address the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And the Apostle Paul, don't miss his intentionality, is that Paul isn't just writing about the second coming kind of uh, in isolation, but he's connecting that how we live should be connected with looking for the coming of Christ. That it should serve as a motivator, as it serves as a guide that we're anticipating and that should reflect in how we live. So that's uh, what we're going to be doing in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Interestingly, if you have in your own Bible, and I hope you're uh, uh, turning your Bible, bring your Bibles. Uh, We have, uh, take some notes uh, just per chance. You might learn something about the Bible. You know, if you're uh, wanting to study the Bible, here's a little hint. We're going to, we do that on Sunday morning, all right? I do the hard work. You can just uh, take the fruit of it and benefit and learn the Bible. So here's a book of the Bible. It's not long. Start reading it. Start digesting it. And uh, when we're done, I hope that we uh, know a little bit more about uh, this little letter called First Thessalonians. And then 
we'll look at 2 Thessalonians uh, following that. But it's interesting, we're talking about the second coming of Christ and kind of just kicking the tires a little bit and getting familiar with this New Testament book that we'll get into. It's interesting that at the end of each of the five chapters, you know, if, if you think of like a hinge on a door, that at the end of each of these five chapters mentions about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. So each of the chapters end like a hinge as Paul goes in. I realize chapters and things were, were put in later, but it's as though Paul is weaving the second coming all through this letter he's writing as an encouragement to this young church. So we don't want to downplay the second coming. It's a huge part of, of our Christian faith, right? It's a huge part. Where we sometimes get lost in the weeds is in some of the details that Scripture doesn't address. So we kind of, you know, import a lot of ideas or whatever, and when we'll get to that part, uh, hopefully I'll figure out what I believe about the rapture and all. No, I'm kidding. I'm teasing you. Um, but we'll, we'll spend a little more time there because it's, it's you know, it can be, and we don't want to get, we, go, we don't want to get lost in, in, the, in the, uh, uh, the, some of the obscure details. We're not going to solve or even look at things in Revelation. We just want to see what Paul taught and, uh, and kind of gain some understanding, all right? So we'll get to that later. But some things that, uh, that are helpful, and I realize that sometimes introductions can be a little bit boring, and I don't want to do that, but really when you study and open a book of the Bible, you should know, one, who wrote it, right? Who wrote it? Uh, to who were they writing it to, and what was going on. Because if you don't understand what we talk about context, then you just kind of pull things out and think, well, this means that, or this means that, and that may not be what it has anything to say. You know, that may not be the intention of what Paul or whoever wrote it and the, and the Holy Spirit intended it to write. Because that's what we're after. We want to find out, what, what did, in this case, what did the Apostle Paul, what did he intend? And certainly what he intended was what the Holy Spirit inspired. And so we don't want to import our thoughts or ideas. We want to find out what God says, right? It doesn't matter what I say. It really doesn't. It just matters what does the Word of God say. And uh, that's, that's our authority and that's our direction. Uh, just a few things to uh, kind of just highlight as we kind of get our feet wet this morning. First uh, Thessalonians uh, may have been one of the oldest books that Paul wrote, perhaps maybe the second book after Galatians that he wrote uh, to this church at Thessalonica, and we'll talk about Thessalonica just in a minute. Uh, it was written maybe about 18 years after the resurrection of Christ, so not a lot of time has passed, and certainly uh, there, were, there were individuals, certainly back in Jerusalem, this is up in Gentile territory where the gospel was going forth, but certainly there were those who uh, were witnesses, certainly the apostles, they were witnesses to the resurrection, so it's only 18 years after Jesus's, uh, the cross and the resurrection. Uh, it's one of the shortest books in the New Testament, uh, and it's also probably one of the easiest books <clears throat> uh, to understand in the New Testament. You get a real heart for the apostle Paul. Uh, if you want to know what Paul's theology is, Romans, we're doing that on Wednesday. If you want to see the heart of a pastor, 1 Thessalonians will give us some insights into the Apostle Paul 
in his heart. Now, uh, where did this church come from? If you have your Bibles, keep something there in 1 Thessalonians. That'll be uh, where we're going to spend the time a little later. But turn over in your Bibles, or swipe over in your Bibles, whatever you want to do, and go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is the account, very brief, uh, just a handful of verses, of the founding of this church in the city of Thessalonica. That church, or rather, I'm sorry, the city is called Thessaloniki today in northern Greece, up in the more of the Balkans, but up in northern Greece. And Thessaloniki, which was Thessalonica, uh, it is the second largest city today in Greece. So the city is still very much thriving as a city. Population would probably be between Tallahassee and Jacksonville. So it gives you an idea of the city. Uh, The city of of Thessalonica was was a port city like Miami. Uh, And so that means uh, anything that was coming through on the outside was going to find its way through Thessalonica and then obviously spread. Uh, It contained a uh, massive harbor uh, that attracted ships from all of the Mediterranean Sea. So in other words, this was a big, in the the sense of of this time period, and and it's under the uh, Rome, Romans, uh, the Roman control, it was a big city. It was very influential city. You know, just like here in the United States, we have influential cities. New York, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago. There's certain uh, cultural, and that, you know, that whatever starts there or happens there, you know, it's going to weave its way through the rest of the nation. Well, Thessalonica was that kind of city. It was also a place in which uh, some of you may be familiar with the Ignatia uh, Way, which was a highway system that connected Rome and Asia, and it passed right through Thessalonica. Why, do I, why am I belaboring that? Because it gives you an idea of the multiple uh, ethnicities, the genres of religions and cultures and people that the Apostle Paul and these believers were, were, had planted a church in. We think that, you know, we can't plant a, a church or have a thriving church Because, you know, certain things in America or whatever our culture has changed. Well, listen, the first century church knew nothing about a government or a culture that was favorable to the church. They were always planted within hostile territory. You hear what I'm saying? So that's why we need to kind of pay attention. How did they grow a thriving church in a culture that was hostile to them? We're going to see that. So... Uh, Thessalonica was a strategic center of culture, politics, the whole thing. Also, interestingly, uh, under Rome, because it was part of uh, Rome, the Roman uh, government territory, uh, Thessalonica was called a free city. And what that meant was was that Rome didn't have to put a standing military uh, army there to keep them in line that they had earned the right to be an independent city within Rome. They could self-govern themselves. 
So Rome didn't have to worry about them, okay? So they were very committed and dedicated to Rome and everything that involved in that. Uh, as I said, multiple groups, Greeks, Romans, Jews, Asians. But religiously, except the Jews, uh, the religious system of Rome and certainly the Greeks was steeped in uh, paganism, okay? Was steeped in idolatry, and we see how uh, this is addressed here in the first chapter. So I told you to go over to Acts 17. I didn't forget that. But we see that Paul, as you know, Paul... The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts helps us uh, learn these different things when it comes to Paul and his ministry. Paul had three what is referred to as missionary trips, missionary journeys. Most of you have Bibles where you have maps in the back. You haven't even looked at them, but there's usually a map back there that shows the, you know, the lines of where Paul traveled. So you can, uh, you can look at that uh, at your own leisure. But this uh, travel when Paul was traveling and came to Thessalonica was what is referred to at, on his second missionary journey that Paul was traveling. And so Paul came to the city of Thessalonica. And if you have your Bibles, it's not going to be on the screen. Uh, and it reads this way. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So uh, I forget the exact number, whether it's 10 males or 20 males, I forget. But a synagogue could be organized anywhere that there was a certain number of Jewish males. So obviously there was a, enough in, to have a significant, as we'll see, uh, presence of Jews who were living uh, in, in Greek, uh, Gentile territory, uh, had established themselves there, that there was a synagogue. And as Paul's tradition was, that he first would go into the synagogue to minister to his fellow Jews. That was usually Paul's habit, and you see that multiple times uh, in the book of Acts. So he went to the synagogue. Verse 2, and when Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, uh, three weeks. Some people think it was a little longer, but we'll say three weeks, three Sabbath days. That's three uh, seventh day. Saturdays is the Sabbath. Sunday is not a Sabbath. Uh, Sunday is the Lord's day. The Sabbath was the Jewish seventh day. He went on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. See, Paul could go into the synagogue, and because there was a common connection of, we'll say, Old Testament, the Old Covenant Scriptures, he could start with and had that as a basis by which he could teach them through the Old Testament, maybe Isaiah, you know, about the suffering servant. In other words, that was the Bible of the early church, the Old Testament. And so he was able to go into these synagogues, take the Word of God, the Old Testament, which they certainly knew and memorized and knew, and he was able to easily converse and teach and show them those things that connected to Jesus Christ, how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the messianic promise. So that was, that was uh, his first place he went. And it says, verse 3, that he went to the synagogue, he reasoned them with the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ the Messiah. 
In verse 4 it says, among these people that he was teaching in the synagogue, it says, and some of them, some of them were persuaded. All right? It didn't say there was this massive, it just said some of them embraced the message and joined Paul and Silas. Silas was his, uh, 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 accompanied him, as did a, listen to the, so you had these Jews in the synagogue that embraced Christ, and they joined Paul and Silas, and it also says that a great many of the devout Greeks, these were Greeks who were uh, sympathetic and, and obeyed the Jewish law, uh, they may have been Jews or not, but they respected the law, and they were in the synagogue, and uh, they heard the message, and they embraced it. And it's interesting that it's included in this last line, and it says not only devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I think that's interesting because typically in Jewish mindset and culture, uh, women weren't always significant. But it's important that the Apostle Paul noted that not just any women, but some significant leading women. Remember Lydia, who was uh, the catalyst, who had that prayer group in Philippi, and they had a prayer group down by the river, and she was a woman of wealth and business. So it's important to note that uh, these leading women, along with these Greeks and Jews, composed this early church. And you think, oh, that's a great story. Ends well, everybody's happy, right? Not so fast. Because it goes on to say, and I won't read it, it goes on to say that there were some of the Jewish leaders that ran the synagogue and had their financial interests in the uh, uh, population of the synagogue and the money and all those things. It says that they were jealous. They resented what was going on there. And as we see in other places in the New Testament, they opposed the message. They opposed Jesus. They opposed the Apostle Paul. So you know what they did? They went out, and they went out to uh, uh, hire a mob, because, you know, they didn't want to taint their hands. They went out and hired a mob to come and attack the Apostle Paul and Silas and these believers to intimidate them and run them out. In fact, there was this guy named Jason there in Acts 17, and he was kind of like the manager of the synagogue, they even were, were busting him up. And it was only when Jason kind of made a deal where he gave them a financial guarantee that they wouldn't come back that they kind of relented. But that meant Paul and Silas uh, had to get out of there and had to leave. Eventually, the apostle Paul made his way to Athens. You remember when Paul was in Athens in Acts 17, that he was waiting on some of the others to come there, Timothy and some of his other traveling companions. And it was when Paul was in Athens that he kind of went out and went on tour and toured around the city. And that's when he began to meet this group of philosophers at the Areopagus or Mars Hill, I think the King James says. Uh, and he began to discuss with them. These were pagan philosophers. And you remember that's when he said, I see that you're really uh, a really religious people. You've got so many idols. In fact, the literal Greek says that the, that the city was smothered in idols, Athens. And he says, hey, I'm here to proclaim to you. Uh, you've got an altar to the unknown God. I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. Remember that story? Well, that's where he went after he was kind of on the run, so to speak, 
out of Thessalonica. So when Timothy and the others met up with him in Athens, Paul's heart as a pastor was of those believers that came to faith in Christ back in Thessalonica that he had to leave in such a hurry. Paul wanted to stay and disciple and mentor and and teach them in the Word, but he couldn't do that. So you know what he did? The Bible says that he sent Timothy to go back to Thessalonica and to, you know, in case you guys don't, you know, no email, no phone, you know, you had to, you know, so maybe a month went by, two months, whatever. So he sent Timothy, his son in the faith, back to Thessalonica to check on this young church and to see how they're doing. And it was as a result of when Timothy came back to Paul that Timothy said, hey, Paul, that church, those people, man, they are doing fantastic. Oh, they've got some pressure. In fact, some of the enemies have not relented, and some family members are pressuring some people in the church to to give up and to go back. Some of them have lost their jobs. Some of them have lost custody of their kids. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, but man, this church, man, I have, Timothy, I don't know if he said this, it doesn't say it, but I mean, it was like, man, I didn't want to come back. It was, it was such a thriving place of people that loved Jesus. And Paul, I knew that your heart would be thrilled to hear how they're doing. That was good news to Paul. So when he heard that, you know what Paul did? Got out his parchment, got out his pen, and he wrote this letter. You with me? All right? You with me? All right. That's the Reader's Digest version. So he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Notice how it begins in verses 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, same person, and Timothy. Those are people that uh, Paul, he's now in, I think he's in Corinth now when he wrote this. Uh, They're with him. Uh, uh, Silas and Timothy, his companions, Paul, and uh, because the scrolls and things, they addressed themselves. We sign our letters at the end. They put their names at the beginning when they opened it up to see who it was from. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What encouraging words to a church that uh, wasn't sure, you know, if they were going to make it, if they were going to give up, and to have the very Apostle Paul say, I'm praying for you and I thank God always for you, uh, had to be an encouragement to that church because they read letters in the, in, the early, in the church. So when they got this letter from the Apostle Paul, they gathered and they read it because this was, this was the revelation of God, the apostolic teaching and the Word, so it was very important. Now this morning we're going to look at chapter 1. And one of the things that uh, is uh, the highlight uh, in verses 1 through 10, that's the entire chapter 1, 
that we learn about this church. Because it's important as we, as Grace Church, you know, just kind of a side note, as a pastor, I can't tell you how through the years I've been in uh, full-time ministry in really church, either on staff or senior pastor, in one way or the other, for 40 years. That's a long time. And I still don't have the t-shirt, all right? Um, and, uh, and the thing that, you know, back in the day of first pastoring, you'd be anybody that had a seminar or wrote a book on how to grow the church, and here's how you have a New Testament church. You know, you're just like, oh, that's the thing. And you'd find out this church is growing, and they're, they're, they're doing all small groups. So you think, oh, that's the thing. We need to do all small groups. And then you go to this church, oh, they're doing all this. And you just kind of run yourself ragged. Whereas through the years, I realized the best church growth book you can get is right here. Right here. Save your money. Give it to me. Save your money. And just... Uh, let the Word of God uh, be our guide. And so here in chapter 1, we see some things that as believers, as a church, as Christians, uh, should be a tremendous encouragement to us. One of the things that we see in chapter 1 that just kind of just shines out that whole chapter is that this is a church gathered Church uh, in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It means called out ones. This is a church, and we know not a building. Buildings didn't come until much later. They were probably meeting in small home groups or meeting in small gatherings, multiple places. But this is a church that among, all, among many of its characteristics, it had one fundamental characteristic that shines through in chapter 1. And I'm going to tell you what it is. And it almost sounds kind of odd when you say it this way, but this church was composed of converted people. Why is that odd? Because you're like, well, duh. No, duh. Because you can be a member of a quote-unquote church and be unconverted, not be a Christian. You can join a church. You can be a deacon, elder. You can, be, you can figure your way up through all the systems. This was a church that Paul specifically, as he is giving thanks for them, that he is underlining, underscoring, that these former pagans who had no background in anything, when he went into the synagogue with the Jews, at least he could have a starting point you know, about the prophecies of the Messiah. These were pagans that were idol worshipers engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality because that was all tied into the pagan religious system. I mean, they had nothing, but what they did have and what they did show forth was that they were genuinely converted to Christ. Their hearts were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The power of the gospel was bearing fruit. They were the real deal. And Paul just exudes uh, in his letter there. They were converted. They really were transformed by the power of the gospel. Conversion. Conversion. 
Being a born-again follower of Jesus is what makes you a part of the church, all right? Uh, Lloyd-John Ogilvie uh, is a name from uh, the past. He was a pastor, author. He was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate in the 80s. He made this quote in one of his books. He says, The great need today is for the conversion of religious people who, though they believe in God, are heading away from Him and not toward Him. The conversion of religious people. He goes on to say that authentic conversion always comes in response to God's call and always results in a radical reorientation of your life. A change happens. It changes your direction. That's what conversion is if it is real. And that's exactly what took place in Thessalonica. So as we look at these 10 verses, I want to challenge you and provoke your thinking. How do you define what a Christian is? How do you define what a Christian is? How do you define or can you tell the difference between a Christian and a religious person? Is there a difference? Does 1 Thessalonians inform us of this? I believe it does. Chapter 1. Does chapter 1 give us insight into biblical truth and how we can evaluate, how we can answer what is a biblical church that is composed of biblical Christians? Can we learn something? Can we gain something here? I believe we can in chapter 1. Now, let me set your minds at ease for just a bit because I am aware of the time, even though I still have plenty, all right? But uh, I have three points, but I am going to just address the first point and do the set, do, finish it up next week, okay? So when I was driving the church, I thought, I asked my wife, I said, do you think that'd be okay? I don't do that too much, but uh, I think it would be more helpful uh, not to keep you here till 2.30. Don't you think that would be good? We'll just stay through till Mike comes, and I'll wrap it up and turn it over to him. You know, not going to do that. So, so you can breathe a little bit when you're like, oh, my goodness, he's only on point one, and so relax. It'll be good, all right? So we'll, we're going to split this in half. Here's what I want you to <coughs> see <coughs> this morning. <coughs> Salvation, conversion... Conversion is a sovereign work of the grace of God. Now, when we say sovereign, that's a, that's a term we use for God that speaks of His rulership, His authority, the only omnipotent, all-powerful one. And His sovereign grace means that that grace is unmerited favor. God gives grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's because it's in God's pleasure. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Um, God sovereignly, as God, has the rule and the right to give grace. Okay, so, so what we're going to see here is that this conversion, any conversion, but especially the conversion of this church, is a work of sovereign grace. Second point, uh, point two and three, the next week, and we won't spend time on introduction all that. Uh, number one, their conversion was purposed 
by God's sovereign grace. Their conversion was purposed by God's sovereign grace. Like any good teacher, the Apostle Paul starts at the beginning in these two verses, in verses 4 and 5, and he answers the question concerning conversion, what must happen first with conversion of men and women? What, where does it begin? Where, where does it happen? What, what begins first? And he gives two answers to that question in verses 4 and 5. So in order for a person to be converted, two things must happen first. There's a Godward side, and something must happen from the human side. So the Godward side, the God side, and what happens with God, that must always come first, okay? So notice with me in verse 4, uh, the divine side, the God side concerning our conversion. What does Paul say? He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. That's the God side. And that answers the question concerning our conversion, a person's conversion, where does it begin? It begins with God's sovereign choice the initiative. God always takes the initiative. God, the Bible says, chose us in love. God made that choice. Now, you may be familiar with this or may not be, but in theology, that's called the doctrine of election. When we have elections, when we elect the dog catcher and everybody, you know, we elect, what are we doing? We're making a choice. We're choosing. So when we talk about election and being chosen, we're talking about God's sovereignty, the reason I keep I use that word is because that means God, God has the absolute right to do what He wants. Hello? So that's why He and He alone can make a sovereign choice concerning those who would be converted. Salvation begins with God's choice of us and not first, I didn't say it doesn't, but it doesn't begin with our choosing God. God takes the initiative, and the Word of God, the Bible, is consistent all the way through Genesis to Revelation, all right? Which we're not going to do all that today. Paul says, brothers loved by God. Election, hear me. Election, the doctrine of election, contrary to some fake news is not a device for sending men and women to hell, but the doctrine of election is God's purpose for rescuing them from hell. When he says brothers, and implied sisters, loved by God, at Thessalonica they were chosen, Paul is reminding them of this important truth, chosen by God, is God's initiative, it is a gift of mercy, it is a gift of unmerited favor, of grace, and it's an act that happens from His unique sovereignty as God. Now, when you get into this discussion, and some of this may or may not be familiar, and so don't, don't lose any sleep over this, historically, you've had two different groups 
identified as Calvinist or Armenians. Not Armenians. Armenians is an ethnic group in former Soviet Union in what, you know, up above Iraq. Those are Armenians. Arminians is, is referred to after a man by the name of Jacob Arminius, Calvinist, after John Calvin. And historically, for shorthand purposes, those have been kind of the two, you know, camps you're in or out of the other. And again, if you don't know all that, don't, don't, don't worry about it. You'll be better off if you don't lose any sleep over it. And essentially, essentially, the debate historically has been this. I'm going to make it real simple has been the debate of the issue of a man's free will and God's sovereignty. Where does one end and where does the other begin? How are they connected? That's the debate. Now, let me just make this really clear. Regardless of of any of these different groups that may have some differences on this doctrine, one thing, if they believe in Scripture, they're all united on in believing that there is a doctrine of election. Otherwise, they would have to discount massive portions of the Word of God. Where the difference comes in is not as if God doesn't choose in some respect. Where the differences in the debate has been is in the mechanics and the how all that works. All right? So we're not going to solve the mechanics today. All right? Or next week or the week after. All right? But here's where I have found after looking and studying and and is that both viewpoints, and I've oversimplified it, because even within those, there's all these different, but just for simplicity, man's free will, God's sovereignty, Calvinists, Arminians. Both viewpoints in many ways have been defended in exclusive terms. Meaning it's either or. That if you embrace man's responsibility, man's will, you can't believe in God's sovereignty. So if you embrace God's sovereignty, you have to negate man's will. And as long as human beings try to wrestle with those things and have tried throughout the years uh, the debate has raged, and the debate has never been satisfying to many people. But in 2,000 years of church history, uh, we are still talking about it because we want to try to put those things together. Now, it's interesting that the Bible teaches not an either-or, but a both-and. You remember Jesus said in John 6, 44, I don't have this, on the screen, no man, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And literally in the Greek, that means drag. Okay? Jesus said that, did he not? No one can come to me unless first God draws him, chooses him, and enables him to do that. But then he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come unto me. All you who are weary and burdened. He didn't say, come to me, all you who are chosen. He gave a universal call. Call to me. The mystery of how those two things are put together is a mystery. I'll give you an example of mysteries doctrinally 
that we accept in the church. How is it that Jesus can be fully God and in the incarnation be fully man? Explain that. How about the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not three gods. Three personalities, one God. Does that make sense? Well, but does the Bible teach those things? Of course it does. And to deny either one of those two things is to put you over in a heretical category to not embrace the full divinity and and manhood of Jesus Christ. That's a core identity of doctrine. The Trinity, to not believe in the triune Godhead of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three personalities, not three gods, but three personalities, one God, monotheistic, that's sound biblical teaching. So when we come to this issue of how does man's responsibility, man's will, and God's sovereignty work together, I don't know, but they just do. You hear what I'm saying? They just do. And it is kind of fun, you know, those of us that read theology, and again, there's, it's not saying, but, but, but the bottom line is, is that if we focus our attention, and this is where I would encourage you, if I'm going to put the weight anywhere, I'm going to put the weight on God and not me. Because the Bible teaches that my choosing system is faulty, terribly faulty without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and being born again. Because anything I choose is always going to be bad. And Romans 3 says there are none who seek God. For a sinner separated from God, the last thing they want is God. They want all the benefits, but they don't want the holy, omnipotent, all-powerful God, Yahweh. No. Because that God makes demands on your life. When we talk about election... Think with me of how this is not something that John Calvin invented or some wacky idea that somebody's come up with. Go back to Abraham. What did Abraham do to be called? Nothing. God sovereignly chose Abraham, Abram, out of some territory called Ur of the Chaldees, chose him, didn't choose brothers, sisters, nephews, neighbors, whatever, chose him out of a pagan group to do what? To make covenant with him. God did that. What about the nation of Israel? Do you realize the nation of Israel is elect by God? Look at the scripture that Moses said in Deuteronomy 7, should be on the screen. Moses says to those Israelites, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you, Israelites, were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because, what? The Lord, the sovereign one, loved you. I mentioned Jesus in John 6, 44. 
this New Testament verse, Ephesians 1, and we'll round this out. Paul said in the New King James, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, he's writing to believers, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, verse 4, just as he chose us, when? In him, before the foundation of the world. Remember when we looked at Psalm 139? And the psalmist said to praising God, all of my days were written in your book before any of them were. But you know, the most simple verse comes down to this. Is in 1 John 4.19. We love Him because He first loved us. You see, the reality, my friends, is all of us say, you know, I don't understand it, but be thankful if you're a believer, if you're converted, that if God had not chosen me first, the reality is I would have never chosen Him. Now, that's the Godward side. We're still on the first point. And I want to just wrap it up and finish this out. As I said, with 40 years of ministry and theological education, I don't claim to understand all the mysteries of the doctrine of election. But as a person who's faithful to the Word of God and preaching it, that's one thing when you preach through the Bible, when you come to things like that, guess what? you got to try to work through it. But I do know this. Salvation is a work of God and not me and not man. It's God's doing. And because it's God's doing, Romans 8 tells me that I can be confident and be eternally secure because God has chosen me and keeps me in Him. You see, I'm fickled. Are you fickled? Do you have bad hair days? Aren't you glad God isn't fickled? Aren't you glad that God's covenantal commitment that was sealed by the blood of Christ on your eternity is as sure as sure will ever be? And that's where you're confident. When we studied 1 John, that one, that the whole theme of 1 John. But I mentioned that there's the divine side, and if you'll just give me a couple of minutes, I mentioned that it's not an either or, that it's interesting in 1 Thessalonians. Paul mentions the human side. We see the divine side, but in this purpose by God's sovereign grace, there's a human side, and we see that in verse 5. Let me read verse 4, kind of read it together. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that's God's motivation of doing anything He has chosen you, verse 5, because our gospel came to you 
not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, I don't believe it's possible, but I don't believe in context when he talks about in power and in the Holy Spirit, he's talking about it came to you in signs and wonders. I don't think that's what's referring to here. The miracle power is the regeneration of the, of the heart of the dead man by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the demonstration of the power, okay? My two cents. But just so we don't become unbalanced, because I like balance, Paul goes from being chosen by God, but he wants to make sure you don't get off track because he talks about that there is a human aspect of conversion. We're talking about conversion. God's sovereign election, God's sovereign choice was made effectual, effective. How? Through the message of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the truth of the gospel to the Thessalonians. And as that was proclaimed, as the word was preached under, with the power of the Holy Spirit, spirit and word, what did it do? It produced, in God's sovereign purpose, it produced deep conviction in the hearts of the hearers. So yes, God did something in eternity in choosing us, but He also ordained the means by which we would come to faith and by which we would be enabled to respond to the message. Do you see how those two things are nicely put together? It's not an either or. Look at your Bibles. And when he says not with, word on, not with words only, you remember Paul, remember when he wrote the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, I'll just, it's not on the screen. Remember he said, my preaching, when I came to you, my preaching was not, and I'm paraphrasing, was not in eloquence of speech and, and manipulation of words. It wasn't oratorical manipulation that you responded. He's, that's what he's saying. It wasn't in just words. But it was words, it was special words. It was the words of God uh, with the apostle having the anointing to speak and write the word of God. It was the word of God combined with the power of the Holy Spirit that produced conviction that without that conviction, without that regeneration, I can't even see my sin to repent of my sin. Because I think I'm okay. And like, what did you say? Do you think you're okay? That's just showing you're not okay, right? Broken, right? That's a good line. I'm going to steal that. I probably won't give you credit. You ever wonder why two people can hear the same message and respond in opposite ways? One person heard words while the other person heard the message. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that takes, the mess, it takes human words in preaching the message of the gospel. Paul said, remember Romans 1.16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. 
That's why when churches get off track and all this crazy stuff and they negate the gospel, they have pulled the plug on the very power of what makes the church the church. The Word and the Spirit always accomplishes God's divine purposes. You know, Sunday after Sunday, right now, I don't know your heart, I don't know how people respond. Through the years, I've just tried to be content with just trying to let the Word speak for itself, knowing that the Word of God's never going to return void and empty, that the Holy Spirit will use the Word. I don't have to raise my voice. I don't have to slobber. I don't have to pull out a hanky and start waving it around. I don't have to have a bunch of props. You know, the well, all right. Melissa, why don't you come? You know that's a good sign when I call her. Next week, we'll look at, secondly, the proof of God's sovereign grace. And thirdly, the portrait of God's sovereign grace as we finish up chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. But let me just say this. I realize... I realize the doctrine of election and those things are weighty things. Heavy, controversial. Shouldn't be controversial, but, you know, we don't have... Remember the Bible says we look through like a glass dimly, you know, but there will be a day we see perfectly. We see Him face to face. Uh, You know, I always think about the blind man that Jesus healed. He wasn't asking for anything. God, Jesus just, just sovereignly healed him. He didn't exercise faith. He didn't do anything. Jesus just touched him and he was, he was healed. And you remember the religious leaders got all jacked up over that because they knew that that was going to go out. That guy was not going to keep his mouth shut. He was going to just go out and cause them more trouble by talking about being healed. In fact, I think it was a congenital blindness he was healed, uh, that he was blind since birth. So everybody knew this guy. And I love it. He just finally, after they're just barraging him, and you know what he says? Essentially, he just says this. All I know, guys, is I once was blind. But now I see. That's all you need to know about election. That's all you need to know. I was blind, but now I see. Amen?